We continue our series through the book of 1 Samuel today by picking up the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'm reading from the 2020 update of the New American Standard Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, the scriptures say this, Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord, as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make for him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she requested of the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord indeed visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything that his sons were doing to all Israel, and that they slept with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why are you doing such things as these, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one person sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was continuing to grow and to be in favor both with the Lord and with people. The story of young Samuel has been woven together with the stories of Eli and his sons instructively. Now, of course, this makes sense since Samuel was being raised in Eli's household. How else would one tell the story of Samuel without at the same time telling the story of Eli? But the prophets who organized the telling of this history have done more than simply tell a chronological tale. They have deliberately compared and contrasted young Samuel with the sons of Eli by interweaving their stories. One strong point of contrast that arises from this organization highlights Samuel's favor with God and Eli's son's disfavor. Even though Samuel's parents had devoted him to full-time service of God in the tabernacle under Eli's supervision, they did not stop caring for him. They continued to come to the tabernacle every year, as had been their custom previously before Samuel was born, to bring sacrifices and offerings before the Lord. And each time they did so, they brought an outer garment for Samuel. The inclusion of this detail places emphasis on the fact that Samuel routinely wore an ephod in his service of God. An ephod was a garment which those who worked in the tabernacle were required to wear for the sake of decency. Samuel's ephod should not be confused with the ephod worn by the high priest, which is discussed at length in the book of Exodus. In Samuel's case, it was most likely an undergarment or even a loincloth, and this is no insignificant detail. We're told later in verse 22 that Eli's sons, on the other hand, were sleeping with women who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. This behavior, of course, was a violation of the covenant of Sinai, but it was also, sadly, very common in the worship practices of Israel's neighboring nations. There are two requirements of the covenant of Sinai that help to make sense of the juxtaposition of the details of Samuel's ephod and of Eli's son's behavior. The first is to be found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 25 through 26, which says, And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your chisel on it, you will profane it. 
and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. The second can be found in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18, which says, If a man sleeps with a woman, so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now these may seem like quite unrelated passages, but they both relate to 1 Samuel's contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons in this passage. Both of these covenantal requirements push back against religious practices common in the ancient Near East, that is, nudity and sexuality. When God made his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, he required them to be fully clothed, never exposing their genitals when they came into his presence in the tabernacle, and he required them never to engage in sexual activity in the context of his worship. That second requirement may be harder for us to see, but the requirement revealed in Leviticus chapter 15 verse 18 that sex made people unclean meant that those who had had sexual intercourse could not come into God's presence until the next evening. That meant that sexual intercourse could not be part of the worship of God. These requirements were in stark contrast to many of the religious practices of Israel's near neighbors, especially those who worshiped the god Baal and the goddess, the goddess Astarte. The exposing of the body and sexual behavior were both recurrent parts of the worship of gods and goddesses in this part of the world, particularly in fertility festivals and fertility rites. This relates to the story of Samuel and Eli's sons in several ways. First, Samuel was wearing an ephod, which indicates that Samuel was covering himself in the presence of God. This highlights Samuel's obedience to the covenant of Sinai and his cleanness before God. Eli's sons, on the other hand, were uncovering their nakedness and the nakedness of some of the women who served at the tabernacle through acts of fornication. This highlights their disobedience to the covenant of Sinai and their uncleanness before God. By placing these two details side by side, the prophets who have given us 1 Samuel have contrasted the cleanness of Samuel with the uncleanness of Eli's sons, and this contrast has been made even starker by the revelation that Samuel was growing in God's favor, while God had already determined to put Eli's sons to death. It's appropriate for us to pause here and remember that God's insistence on modesty in his presence and God's disdain for promiscuity remain important in the new covenant of Jesus as well. The call to flee sexual immorality is a recurrent one throughout the writings of the New Testament. For example, we might recall the Apostle Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, when he wrote, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Additionally, Paul continued to call worshipers of God in the New Testament to modesty as well. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, Paul advised the following, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, with respect to this latter verse, we should not read Paul as having required modesty only of women. We recall that the priests were all males in ancient Israel and were likewise called to modesty in their service of God. It's most likely that the immodesty, particularly in view in 1 Timothy, 
was related to the behavior of some of the women in the churches of Ephesus. Just as in 1 Samuel, the immodesty was related to the behavior of two male priests. In any case, modesty in service of God remains important to God in both covenants. And any who claim to follow Jesus evidence their faith in part by fleeing sexual immorality and by dressing and behaving modestly. These are important observations, and they're critical for moving the text of 1 Samuel, this historical narrative, forward. But there's also another detail that I would like to spend the remaining part of our time today considering. The text has told us that Samuel was continuing to grow and to be in favor both with the Lord and with people. And that favor seems also to have included Eli. Eli was pleased, apparently, with Samuel. In fact, Eli seems to have made it a habit of blessing Hannah and Elkanah whenever they came to the tabernacle by saying, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she requested of the Lord. Eli seems to have been pleased with Samuel's service, wouldn't you say? What perplexed me, however, when I first revisited this passage in preparation for today's discussion, is that God seems to have heard Eli's prayer and allowed Eli to receive some measure of glory for God's answer. Look back with me at 1 Samuel 2.21, which says, The Lord indeed visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Now in the passage we'll discuss next week, God will send a prophet to condemn Eli specifically for the way in which he had raised and disciplined his sons. Eli has not been presented to us as a righteous person, nor has he been presented to us as one with whom the Lord was pleased. And yet it would seem the Lord blessed Hannah in precisely the way Eli had vocalized to her. This bothered me primarily because it seems to me that blessing Hannah according to Eli's prayer would most likely have left the impression that God was with Eli. And if Hannah was privy to the behavior of Eli's sons at the tabernacle, as the text says all Israel was, then what might Hannah have then assumed about God? This was troubling to me, but also instructive. I was reminded of another incident which occurred centuries later during the days of the prophet Jonah. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. The text reads as follows. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not abandon all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat as far as the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. Yet the Lord did not say that he would wipe out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God's decision in the days of Jonah was similar to the one he made in the days of Hannah. The text tells us that Jeroboam, who's Jeroboam the second, there were two Jeroboams, this is the second of them, the text tells us that Jeroboam II was a wicked king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, God chose to give him victory over his enemies anyway. Why did God do this? Well, 2 Kings 14.26 has told us, For the Lord saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter, 
for there was neither bond nor free spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. In the days of Jonah, God gave a wicked king success because of his mercy and compassion on that king's people. Something similar has happened in the days of Hannah, wouldn't you say? God agreed to answer the prayer of a wicked high priest because of his desire to show mercy to a meek and humble woman who had suffered long at the hands both of her body and of her family. One would think that God would care more about his reputation and about setting unhealthy precedents than he would about showing mercy. And yet, God is indeed, as he declared to Moses, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. Jesus behaved similarly when he violated Jewish Sabbath law in order to heal the lame and the sick, and even when he was willing to sit at a table with tax collectors and sinners and share with them the message of his gospel. What does this tell us about God? Well, in part, these decisions of God reveal to us that God is willing to have his own reputation smeared for the sake of mercy. God was willing to show mercy to Hannah, even if that mercy might have left the impression that he approved of Eli. In the days of Jonah, God was willing to show mercy to the people of Israel, even if that mercy might have left the impression that he approved of King Jeroboam II. In the person of Jesus, God was willing to show mercy on the Sabbath, even if that mercy might have exposed him to the charge of being a lawbreaker. And in the person of Jesus, again, God was willing to associate with those living in sin and to teach them his way, even if his presence might have left the impression that he approved of their wickedness. God, it would appear, does not put his reputation before his compassion and mercy. What a mighty God we serve. Those who know God should do likewise. And there is yet another lesson to draw from this behavior of God towards Hannah. Simply because God blesses a person does not necessarily indicate God's approval of that person. Simply because God shows mercy to a person does not necessarily indicate God's pleasure with their decisions. Simply because God answers a person's prayer does not reveal necessarily that the one who prayed is righteous before him. Eli's righteousness was not revealed by his prayer, nor was it indicated by God's blessing of Hannah in answer to that prayer. Eli was not righteous. God had determined to kill both him and his sons, as next week's passage will make clear. And yet, God answered his prayer anyway. What are we to take from these observations? I think Jesus can help us to learn from them in some of his concluding statements in his Sermon on the Mount. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a challenging teaching of Jesus, but so very instructive for the people of God. When Jesus said, so then you will know them by their fruits, what did he mean? After all, one could have counted an answered prayer as a fruit. By that measure, Eli would have been in God's favor. God did answer his prayer and miraculously blessed Hannah twice. Well, you could say six times. But Eli was not in God's favor. In Eli's case, answered prayer was not evidence of godliness. And this was Jesus' point as well. Jesus suggests in verses 21 through 23 that prophesying is not evidence of being in relationship with God, casting out demons is not evidence, and miracles are not evidence. None of these, according to Jesus, are fruit. To put Jesus' words in more contemporary garb, neither anointed preaching, nor the predicting of future events, nor physical or spiritual healing, nor impressive acts of uncommon ability, none of these are fruits that reveal folks to be truly from God. Those who do not know God can do all of these things, just as Eli, who did not know God, could utter prayers that God chose to answer. And just as King Jeroboam II could bring a decisive victory in battle and at the same time be evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what then are the fruits that reveal a person to know God? We spoke about those in our last discussion, and in context, Jesus spent Matthew chapters 5 through 7 describing them in great detail. Last week, we spoke about what it means to walk with God, to know God, to obey God, to bear fruit. The Apostle Paul has summarized Jesus' teachings and example with these words from his epistle to the Galatians in chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 of that epistle. Paul wrote this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The people of God must not be fooled by charisma, by competence, by giftedness, by excellence, or by impressive feats of skill and power. Eli blessed Hannah, and God chose to make an infertile woman fertile. Eli blessed Hannah again, and God chose to add five more children to that miracle. And still Eli did not know God. In fact, God was so displeased with Eli and his sons that God had already determined to put them to death. Those who know God 
are revealed by the ways in which they are walking. The people of God must discern those God has sent and those God has not sent, especially during this season of uncertainty and judgment. As Jesus has told us, we will know them by their fruit. And even more personally, we must not be fooled by our own successes and achievements into thinking that God is pleased or displeased with us based on these things. God is merciful, and he sometimes chooses to show mercy even to the wicked. The evidence of knowing God is walking with God, or to use Paul's words, walking in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. May the Lord aid us in our discernment, both of those who present themselves to lead us and of our own relationship with God. As Jesus has instructed us, God's children are known not by their achievements, successes, or failures, but by their fruits. Amen.